Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is uh, May 28, 2014, and this is episode 1355 of the Survival Podcast. And i got a good one for you, a subject we've talked about before, but never really talked about a lot. That's aquaponics. I've got a great guy hanging on the line named Tom Smith. He's going to come on and talk to us all about aquaponics and some different options and some different aspects of it that we've not discussed before. Before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, uh, Frank Sharp Jr. and uh, Fortress Defense Consultants. I'll tell you what, I talk about it all the time, the triangle of gun operator efficiency. It's a pretty simple thing, but it's pretty cut and dry, and it's pretty much written in stone. There's three things necessary for the effective use of a firearm in a deadly conflict situation. The first one is the firearm has to be there. It has to work. So good, dependable, reliable firearm. The second one is ammunition. Firearm, no ammunition, equals expensive club. The third one, and the greatest variable in those things, is the operator of the weapon himself. That's you. You are at the top of that triangle, the other two being uh, the left and right bottom corners. And uh, the only way to ensure that that operator is the proper linchpin that he needs to be, or she needs to be, is proper training. Proper training like you'll get at Fortress Defense Consultants with Frank Sharp Jr. and his amazing cadre of instructors. Check them out at FortressDefense.com. And remember, if you can't get up to uh, Indiana where Frank is, and you put together a small group of people, I'd say five or six guys, you guys can find a range or use even private property, and Frank can bring the training to you. That's awesome. be a great thing for you guys to do in one of your prepper groups or church groups or something like that. It doesn't cost anywhere near as much, I think, as people think it might. And the investment is priceless. Unlike the firearm that you buy and it's just a thing, it's a skill set, a skill development set. And if you do it with guys you know, it's also a pretty good bonding experience. So please think about that and get in touch with Frank today and see how he can help you. Next up today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? Berkey Water Filtration Systems. Water is something we take for granted. It's something we hugely take for granted, but I'll tell you what, as soon as you see a natural disaster happen in an area, whether it's an earthquake in Haiti or it's a hurricane right here in the United States, you start seeing them bring relief in, what's one of the first things you see? Big giant cases of what? Bottled water. One of the most important things. Just imagine, you know what it makes me think of? Here, how about this? 9-11. How does that come up? I remember seeing people come out of the dust cloud 9-11, unable to see for all the crap that was on their face and watching people pour water out of a bottle onto their face so that they could see again. Water is life. Water is a sanitary need as well. It's a comfort need as well. Water is something we cannot just assume will be there when we need it. And hey, I'll tell you what. I get reports all the time. Uh, so-and-so city is uh, advised a boil water advisory, and when you look into it, the incident that they're advising the boil the water advisory for happened like four or five days before they figured it out, and you've been drinking the water the whole time. If you were drinking a Berkey, you probably wouldn't be as worried about that, would you? Check it out, and don't be the person to get your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you get it from the original, Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason, at directive21.com. 
Uh, next up today, I want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. Please consider joining if you've never done so. Um, you help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you qualify for a discount if you'll email me before, not after you join with service discount in the subject line. Send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com and tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and uh, I will get back to you. Uh, with a discount code to save you even more money. I do want to say something about MSP today. I got an email from a guy today that said, I, I listened to this old episode and I wanted to comment, but I figured I'm not allowed to comment until I'm a member. No, doesn't work that way. Um, the show's free. The show's absolutely free. No one is compelled to be a member unless you want to be a member. If you want the discounts and you want to support the show or you just want to support the show, then you know become a member. If you want some of the other benefits, you become a member. The show is free, the blog is free, chatting on the blog is free, the Zello channel is free, the forum is free. The only thing that costs money is the actual membership if you want to be a member, and then it comes with some benefits. I just wanted to clear that up. I also want to point out we are relaunching the Perma Ethos PDC, not the Founders Program, but just 500 seats for the PDC. On Saturday at 8 a.m. Central Time, I keep getting a lot of emails about this. I put out a very detailed post on it. It's at the blog. Um, and I will send an email to all MSB members pointing it out. But I keep also getting a lot of, like, let me tell you all about my life and why you should let me into the program, etc. I'm sorry. I can't do it that way. This is a jump ball. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you, you probably don't care. And if you do... I hope you understand what I'm saying with Perma Ethos and the PDC and the class uh, expansion and the decision made about that and the explanation on the blog. We can't take somebody because you have these extenuating circumstances in your life. It's fair by letting everybody go for the spots at the same time, the same way, with nobody getting a leg up. That's the only way we can be fair, equitable, and just to them. Okay, so that said, the reason I brought that up, if you're not MSB, you're not even in it. Um, we decided to keep it for MSB and Brink of Freedom members only. And, uh, you know, I look at it this way. A one-month membership is five bucks. You can cancel any time you want. Somebody that really wants in the PDC that says, basically, I absolutely refuse to support TSP at all, well, right now your spot goes to somebody else because we have more people that want a spot than spots we have available. And I think that's fair to the people that have supported the show. Anyway, with that, let's get into the uh, main topic sort of today. Let's talk about the... Uh, History segment, the year is 1355. Um, there's two that I'm really kind of like, which one do I do? And I guess I'm just going to do the first one and tell you to read the second one at tspwiki.com because they both make the same point to me, even though Alex doesn't point out either one. Alex Shrugged does these uh, history segments for us at 1355 this, this, this day because it's the episode 1355, but he does them at tspwiki.com. That's the Survival Prepper Sustainable Lifestyle Wiki. You can be a contributor of uh, at tspwiki.com. 100 Years War, Taxing the Poor. With the loss of labor and rising prices due to the plague, the noblemen are blaming King John the Good of France. Pope Innocent VI is pushing for peace between England and France since he knows the Muslims have taken Garopoli, a key strategic point for the invasion of Europe. With both sides out of money, England and France enter in negotiations, but just as the treaty is to be signed in favor of England, France pulls out. King John pulls out a call for the troops, but how will he pay? The French estates agree to a new tax. They will tax the rich at 4%, the middle class at 
and 10% tax on the poor. This tax policy will cause a small riot in the city of Aris, which will be quickly put down. But like the new labor laws in England, the peasants are primed for revolt. What Alex says is both sides were aching for peace, and they had every reason to. What the heck happened? France was giving up too much. That made them seem weak. There were indications that England was going to take even more once they fleeced France for everything it had. As Donald Rumsfeld once said, weakness is provocative. There will be things happening in the world that wouldn't have happened if the U.S. stayed on a path that suggested we were not in decline, that we were not going down. I don't agree with much of what Donald Rumsfeld said, but I kind of sort of do with that. But my take is totally different. I think some people are listening to this and go, wow, how unfair. The rich only pay 4%, the middle class pay 5%, and the poor pay 10%? Oh my God, how unfair is that? I agree, it's totally unfair. But I want you to seriously consider how, is, how would it be any less unfair if we said, get this, the rich pay 10%, the middle 5%, and the poor 4%. How is that less unfair? How is that less unfair? Well, see, the rich can afford it. No, 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 no. You're stealing somebody's money. You either steal it all equally or you don't steal it at all. That's the way I look at it. See, here's, and the other one talks about, and you can read the whole thing for yourself, basically a riot that happened in Oxford because uh, the students of the Oxford University were tried basically as clergy under, clergy under a totally different legal system than the townspeople. You can read the details if you want to. But again, it's, it's unfair because it's different. Right, just like I was talking about the uh, the MSB and getting into the PDC and how the second round will go and not giving anybody pro see it's fair because it's all the same. Doesn't matter why you think that you should be to the front of the line. The line is the line. Get in it and do your best, and we'll do our best to serve as many people as we can. Treat everybody the same. See, it's when you start treating people differently that you create divisions within society. And a divided society is easy to rule. It's easy to control. I mean, you'll notice that even though there'll be peasant revolts in both England and, and France over this kind of thing, that the, the, the people in power will basically stay in power. So how is it any less fair to tax the poor at a higher percentage than the rich than to tax the rich at a higher percentage than the poor? And notice how the people in the middle pay the same no matter what happens, and there's always more of them. Think about that. And I know I'll hear from some bleeding-heart, liberal-minded individuals that for some reason still like TSP that'll tell me, you don't understand. It's completely fair because rich people are evil. Well, rich people aren't always rich in the real world of richness, okay? The rich people that pay taxes are not the rich people that you think you're talking about. The really rich people don't pay taxes at all. If you want to, you want a wake up call. Go look at what amount of taxes General Electric as a corporation paid last year. Go look at what Apple paid last year. And then tell me the rich are actually taxed at a higher rate. So the rich aren't taxed at a higher rate. The successful are. But even so, I don't think that the extremely rich or the moderately rich or the affluent or the upper middle class or lower middle class or poor, I don't think anybody should be treated any differently than anybody else in regard to public policy. Now, you know me, I think all taxes theft at the point of a gun with the use of force by the state to steal your property. That's what I think it is. 
But I also think that it's terrible when somebody is killed in an accident and we're left with nothing but a healthy liver. But since that healthy liver is there, if we can put it into somebody and save their life, we should. That doesn't mean we should try to create more accidents so we have more livers to work with, but we should acknowledge there it is. So the way I see it, if we're going to have a tax on income or property in this country, then everybody should be treated equally. And I think it's no more unfair to have a higher rate for the poor than it is to have a higher rate for the rich. And I think the progressive taxation system is clearly nothing new since we're in the year 1355 here, and it serves the same purpose that it always has. It's not to collect as much money as possible for the public interest. It's to divide the public so that those in power can manipulate and control them. In this case, it does seem to have backfired. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. I want to bring on now our special guest, uh, Tom Smith. Uh, Tom's a pretty cool guy. He's a uh, graduate student and research assistant in an aquaculture research program. He's designed and built a 2,000-gallon tilapia hatchery for an urban farm, manages 10 aquaculture ponds, 24 outdoor tanks, three indoor recirculating systems, and co-manages two research aquaponic systems. So that's pretty daggone cool. And with that, hey, Tom, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thank you, Jack. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you on. We're here to uh, talk about aquaponics today. Can I start out with uh, how did how did you get into aquaponics? I mean, and I don't mean like what did you do first. I mean like how did you end up there? Like what what crooked path in life led you to a place where you're balancing fish and plants needs? Yeah, so um, you know, it's it's quite a quite an interesting path because aquaponics is such a you know such a new field. Um, you know, and there's uh, there's not a whole lot of out there yet. Um, I actually just talked with a guy uh, today who's thinking about uh, starting up a farm in North Carolina, um, and that was uh, you know that happens you know relatively infrequently uh, that we uh, talk with someone who's actually uh, thinking about uh, getting into the field. So that gives you an idea of uh, of kind of how new it is. Um, but I I started off uh, in uh, my undergraduate ed- education in the uh, classical uh, biology world and uh, just, you know, was looking for something a little different than the laboratory science, uh, started getting interested in agriculture. Um, and my, uh, an old uh, high school teacher uh, left the profession and was starting this uh, aquaponics uh, training nonprofit. And um, I hadn't been in contact with him for quite some time. But I found his uh, website, contacted him, and he said, you know, we'd love to have you over and show you around. And from there, it just uh, just continued on. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. So um, why did you eventually decide, like, this was the thing you were going to do? Like, what, what, what went from, like, okay, it just went from there to, like, I'm going to make this, like, a part of my life? Yeah, it's, um, you know... It, it sounds a little corny, but it's uh, it's just kind of a, a beautiful system. You know, it's everything all wrapped up into one, and uh, you know, it's kind of uh, it's a model ecosystem, really. And that's 
you know, there's something about it that uh, it's useful as a teaching tool, just kind of teaching general ecosystem dynamics, uh, generally how the natural world works. Um, but it's also it's also highly productive, and um, you know, just all of that together made a made it interesting. And then you throw in the the fact that we don't really know much about it, so you know, there's a lot to discover. Now, you talk about aquaculture in your notes here and aquaponics. So what are the, what's the upside of, of, of aquaculture versus aquaponics? Yeah, so aquaponics, um, as you and uh, I would say, I know you've done interviews in the past, so most of your listeners probably know, is where you are growing a live aquaculture species, you know, like a tilapia or a catfish and you take all the water from the tank the fish is in and you use it to grow plants as the fertilizer, right? The fish fertilize the plants and the plants uh, filter the water for the fish. Now, that's a kind of a melding of, of aquaculture and hydroponics, right? Aquaculture is the growing fish part and hydroponics is the growing plants part. So when I talk about aquaculture on its own, that's more like... Um, you know, growing catfish uh, in a pond or uh, salmon in a sea cage, you know, or oysters uh, on racks set in a tidal flat. You know, so aquaculture is the uh, is the aquatic part of it. Gotcha. Um, and how would a person then make a decision, like what's right for them then? Yeah, so uh, aquaponics is really great at producing plants, and you get a couple of fish, uh, they're more like a bonus at the end of a production cycle. Um, so if you want a lot of leafy greens, you want uh, some tomatoes, you want your plants, then aquaponics. Uh, aquaponics is good for you. If you want protein, you know, if you want fish, or if you're by the coast and you want um, shellfish, or uh, if, you, if you can find the uh, supplier for baby prawns and you want shrimp, you know, then aquaculture is for you. So it's, uh, it depends on what your goals are. Are you raising uh, for livestock or are you raising for leafy greens? I think there's been some confusion with that because so many people that sell it online today that are, maybe are not actually practicing it, that are more like info marketers, always sell like the fish and vegetable part of it. And, and tend not to be really honest about the fact that is like you put it, the protein output of an aquaponic system is kind of like a bonus. Exactly, and that's you know that's I think with any new uh, new technique or industry you go through this, but with aquaponics it's been uh, it's been really terrible. We you know we call them aqua shysters. You know these aqua people shysters. that come in and you know buy my ten thousand dollar system and you'll be able to feed your entire village. You know with yeah. All the fish you want and all the produce too, but you know aquaponics is really about the plant production. Yeah, I mean uh, the the guy that I thought did a really good job with his DVDs, and I'm sure you've heard of him, is Murray Hallam out of Australia. Yes, yeah. and he doesn't really explain it well in his first DVD because his first DVD is well, this is how to build one for your backyard, so it's it's just a how to. But he he has a little bit more dialogue going in the series as he goes along, and he and he pretty much says. If you're going into this for commercial production, the money's in the vegetables. Mm -hmm. The money's in the lettuce. The money's in the leaf crops. The money is not in the fish. Exactly. You know, the, the, 
the fish is a means to ecologically uh, produce plants. And, uh, you know, you harvest your fish and maybe give them out to your staff and as a big thank you at the end of the year, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes perfect sense. Um, so you did kind of mention real quick here invertebrates like shrimp and oysters and prawns and stuff like that. Every time I go to an aquaponics forum, not an aquaculture, but an aqua, true on aquaponics forum, there's always questions and discussion about raising animals like that in aquaponics system, but I don't find a lot of people saying, I'm doing it, it works, here it is. Um, is it possible? Is it, is it even a good idea? Um, uh, I would, if you're looking at shellfish, uh, as far as oysters or mussels and things like that, I would say, uh, you know, at this point, almost certainly no. Um, it's because uh, to grow your plants, uh, you need uh, fresh water. Right, your plants don't like salt, and all of your uh, edible shellfish um, are going to live in salt water. Uh, there are species of uh, of shellfish that can be eaten. You know, they're edible from a safety standpoint that grow in fresh water, um, but they're uh, at least uh, in the United States they aren't frequently eaten, uh, and so it's very difficult to find a supply of uh, your seed stock. You know, to compare to chickens, this would be like finding a supply of baby chicks. Um, and it's also, uh, they're also just difficult to keep alive because nobody's done it before. Nobody knows how to do it. Um, what would you say to the person right now that's screaming at the, the speaker that they're listening to or into their headphones, crayfish? I, you know, crayfish, you absolutely could. Um, again, you're going to have to find a seed stock. Uh, if you can, I would say go for it. Um, you have to keep in mind that in an aquaponics system, all of the food for the, uh, the animal component um, is added to the system. So uh, for uh, crayfish, uh, typically the food is cheaper uh, than fish food, but it might be something you have to order specially from, uh, from a commercial aqu- aquaculture food supplier. Um, I think my issue with them would be, okay, so I grow crayfish. They don't grow that fast. They don't get that big. And if you've ever been to a crawfish boil, you go through an awful lot of them really fast. So even though you do look at the protein, it's just a bonus. I just don't see it as pound for pound viable. The animal takes up a lot more space than it produces in something you really want to eat. You only get so much protein out of sucking brain juice, and the tail is relatively small compared to the total animal. They're not like a shrimp or a prawn where 90% of the body is edible. Yeah, is tail muscle, and that's you know that's a great point. So, if you want maximum production, you know, from the protein side, then absolutely fish would be a better bet. Or, um, you know, crayfish, like you said, not a whole lot of meat. Um, but at the end, you mentioned uh, prawns and shrimp, and uh, most shrimp that's eaten is marine shrimp. Um, but there are uh, species of freshwater shrimp. And uh, the most um, the most common uh, the Latin name is uh, Macrobrachium rosenbergii. Um, it doesn't really have a, a common name that I'm aware of, but it usually goes by just freshwater prawn in this country. Um, so those are cultured uh, throughout the United States in ponds, and there has been work done culturing them in aquaponics system as an addition to the fish. Uh, but from a biological standpoint, there's no reason why you couldn't grow them in place of the fish. 
Sure. Yeah, so sure. if you're interested in the invertebrate, wrapping that into the aquaponic system, you know, you absolutely can do it, but uh, make sure you're looking at freshwater prawns and not marine shrimp. Yeah, that, that makes complete sense. I know there's a lot of them being raised, like, in Tennessee and Kentucky right now. Yeah. Um, and the reason is because there's so many distilleries there, and they're feeding them uh, the, the spent grain from the distilleries. They have partnerships kind of set up, and they're doing them in ponds, like you say. And I, I don't know, it just seems like that type of an animal, the growth cycle's long, to get to the size they're marketable. You need more water, I guess, is what it seems like to me. Yeah, uh, you, you know, you're looking at, um, you know, at least the – Oh, I would, you know, in a tank, it's hard to it's hard to say because it all depends on the environmental temperature. But uh, you know, you'd at least be looking at probably an eight month or nine month cycle. So the one thing that's always intrigued me that's out of the norm is snails. Has anybody done anything with that? I threw some in my little I would call my system a little aquaculture system uh, that supposedly would winter over, and I haven't seen a one since the day I put them in there. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where they went. <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, wintering over is a is a tricky business all around. Um, and as far as snails go, um, yeah, there just there aren't a whole lot of edible species of snails. Um, so if you want an edible species of snail, uh, yeah, that'd be great. But I would uh, I would encourage you know a listener to to find one and to research it heavily um, because I mean there hasn't been any work done with it in aquaponics. And as far as aquaculture, um, you know, that's I'm, I'm not terribly familiar with uh, growing snails, so I won't comment on that. That makes sense. Um, now, what everybody does talk about and everybody does seem to do is tilapia. Yes. What are the advantages of tilapia, and is it is it always the right choice, or is it most often the best choice? Um, you know, it, de- it depends uh, a lot on what you're doing, and I... I love tilapia because they are great to work with. They're extremely hardy. Um, you know, it's it's really hard to kill all of your fish when you're growing tilapia. Um, they're one of the most hardy fish as far as environmental conditions um, for you know ammonia levels, uh, solids levels. You know, that's uh, short for suspended solids. Like if your water is really murky and cloudy uh, or low oxygen levels. Um, but the issue with tilapia, and it's a, a huge issue that people often overlook, is that if the temperature gets below 55 for most species, uh, maybe 50 or 60 for some other species, uh, they all die. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's not a great attribute. Right? So I would say if you have reliable heating um, or you're in a climate where you don't have to worry about the temperature getting that low, then tilapia are good. Um, a fish that's just as hardy uh, as tilapia but can withstand colder temperatures uh, would be your catfish, uh, just regular channel catfish. Or also, um, you know, we don't eat carp in this country, um, but it is, uh, I think it's the third most commonly uh, grown uh, species of fish is the common carp. Um, and so if you, you know, it, if you prepare it correctly, it tastes just like any white fish, right? So if you you can stomach the thought of eating carp, you know, that would be another great choice. I think that we're messed up in the head in this country over carp. Like, like we've gotten some kind of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, prejudiced against this, this, this fish as being somehow something tainted or wrong with it. 
and I think it's 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 threefold. One, it was a choice of the poor at one time, and that always just taints something's reputation. And number two, it'll live anywhere. So if you've ever tried it one time and you ate it out of a cesspool, well, that's what it tastes like. And and, and number three, they just kind of you know they got the big old sucker mouth and and what what have you. But I think those three things have, have have given it a bad rap. But it's the most eaten fish on planet Earth. Yeah, it absolutely is. And it, it really does, you know, like you said, if you get it out of a cesspool, it's going to taste like the cesspool. But if you get it out of, you know, decent water, it's it's going to taste just like tilapia or just like catfish. You know, just a mm. good white fish. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I'm, I've actually, in my little, uh, like I call it an aquaculture system right now, it's just a few tanks. and all You might have seen it on YouTube, but... Um, I just have goldfish in there. I'm not going to eat them, but they do really, really well, and they're basically a species of carp. So uh, the, the hardiness of them is is kind of striking. I uh, I bought a hundred of them, the little ones that are nine cents a fish at the fish store, mm-hmm. and the girl just kind of rolled her eyes when I said a hundred, and I'm like, and I'd like them in two bags of fifty, please. <laughs> so then she really rolled her eyes and like flicked her hair and went and got them and. We brought them home, and we didn't even, like, adjust the water. I mean, we're like, they're like nine cents. Screw it. Whatever ones die, die. And we just, like, opened the bag and dumped them in. And I think we got two or three floaters out of each tank. And they all went through the winter. We had uh, the coldest day here was 17 degrees. Yes. Um, and the tank never froze solid, obviously, or they would be dead. But, I mean, froze over, kept the water pump running. I've had, with my siphon system, a few things go wrong and drain down to very low water at one time. And... Man, these fish just keep they just keep going. And then for the hell of it, we had a local feed store here that that said they had a fish guy coming in that was selling fish for ponds mostly, and he had some uh, hybrid bluegill. Mm-hmm. And I threw fifty of those, twenty five in each tank, and these are four hundred and seventy gallon tanks. I had one float. I don't know how big they are right now because they stay hidden, but they've done okay. So it seems like there is some hardiness to certain fish besides just tilapia. Yeah, there absolutely is. And just a fun fact on the goldfish, um, it's an incredibly hardy species. It's uh, the only fish species that we know of that it can, when it uh, when oxygen levels get low enough, it starts just like a yeast would. It starts to ferment uh, ethanol, right? Okay. So it can continue to live by creating ethanol instead of, you know, as it normally does, by using oxygen. <laughs> Is that all carp, or is it just certain species of goldfish? Uh, it's just it's it's most goldfish, uh, not uh. carp. So uh, uh. carp goldfish are particularly hardy, but uh, but I mean all carp will do you know just as well, if not better, than a tilapia. I had somebody make a recommendation recently that I had never considered before because I don't give a damn about koi. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were like, "What you should do is just put a bunch of small koi in both of those tanks." And I'm like, what am I going to do with coin? They're like, well, when they get bigger than you want them, sell them for money. Yeah, went, yeah. You know what? People spend a lot of money on large koi. They do. And then, you know, if you're, uh, if you're a good enough marketer or salesperson or if you know someone who's really into koi and would love to buy them, then that's a fantastic opportunity. Yeah. I would also say that, you know, koi is, is the same species as common carp. So if you can't find common carp, but you want to grow something, you know, throws throw koi in your tanks or your ponds and and then just eat the koi. You, know? you could. 
Of course, you're eating a fish that somebody might pay thirty bucks for. You know, <laughs> get a pound of fish for you know, if that off of a larger one. Because I think that's another thing that people underestimate with fish is the 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 live weight to yield weight is is vastly different. Yeah. Um, yes. like you talk about catfish, a, a, a channel catfish that's two feet long is freaking twenty percent head. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think people underestimate that loss, and so I guess it'd be with all of that in mind. Like, how how would you choose what to raise as someone that's like, I'm going to do the aquaponics thing. I get that the fish are a bonus, but out of all these choices, what should I personally choose? Um, you know, I would say if you're uh, if you're looking at it, the main factors, are you doing this inside or outside? Um, you know, so if you're doing it inside. Uh, it's probably going to be, you know, in your basement or somewhere in your house, uh, somewhere where the environment's relatively well regulated. Um, and if you if you can keep it uh, heated, or if you're going to keep it heated above uh, 60, 60 degrees or above, um, I would go uh, I would go with tilapia uh, because they are very easy uh, to set up a couple of small tanks and to breed them. Um, if you're if you're looking at doing aquaponics outside and you're in a warm climate, tilapia might be good. Um, you know, goldfish are certainly great. They will grow big. Uh, same thing with koi or your carps or your catfish. Um, I would say those would all be better options for outside. Um, but if you're in a warm climate, tilapia still will work outside perfectly well. Um, so the main thing is your heating considerations, where you don't want to, you know, have the temperature get too cold and all of your fish die. Um, if you're, if you realize the fish are just a bonus and, uh, you know, you, you don't really want to deal with all the hassle or you don't want to try to you know, worry about where am I going to get my fish next or are my tilapia going to breed on time, all of these different things, uh, then I would say, you know, just buy a couple goldfish or, or koi, throw them in there and, and forget about it. You know, let them grow, harvest your plants, and and don't worry about the fish at all. It, yeah, it, it's hard to beat, uh, you know, something you can get for uh, nine cents to thirty cents a fish at any store you want. And I mean, yeah, the reason we bought a hundred of them, I was thinking half of them would die, right? Yeah. So, so a hundred fish at nine cents fish. These were like the little comet feeders. Mm-hmm. That's nine bucks, right? So then they all lived. Well, not all, but like I'd say probably you know ninety out of a hundred lived. Uh, it was really surprising to me how tough those damn things were. Yeah, I mean absolutely. And you know if you're looking for resiliency, that's you know that's something that's hard to beat. So what type of system do you use to to do all this? Um, you know, I mean, we've heard from a lot of different people on a lot of different types of systems. Are you are you more a flush and drain guy, a deep water guy? What what kind of system are you using? Um, you know, personally, I do a lot of work with uh, with the deep water systems. Um, you know, just because it's you know, from uh, siphons are sometimes tricky to get going. Uh, and please explain the difference between the two, because I'm just throwing those names out there, but new people might not have any idea what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. So there's there are three main types of aquaponic systems. There's and uh, there's the deep water system, uh, which, you know, if I have my history right, was uh, was developed first uh, in the Virgin Islands. And this is where you've got your fish in a tank. That tank is piped to uh, to what's called a grow bed, and this is uh, it's essentially a shallow tank that's maybe uh, 
maybe a, a foot deep, and uh, depending on the size of your system, it could be you know 100 feet long, it could be four feet long, and uh, the same thing with the width, it's a couple feet wide, uh, up to about you know four feet wide, because you want to be able to reach the middle from both sides. Um, and on on top of the shallow tank, you put a floating raft, um, and in this raft, you drill holes and you set your plants in the holes. Now, then you've got your flood and drain systems, uh, which are the same uh, setup, fish in a tank, long shallow tank for the plants, but, but this time, instead of the floating raft, you throw a bunch of uh, media, like a gravel or a expanded shale is popular, uh, something that's going to sink and stay in place and hold your plants. Right? So you have all this media in here, you plant your plants into the media, uh, and then the... Uh, you have a system of siphons that's set up to where the the grow bed is going to fill with water, uh, and then it's going to drain, and that happens, you know, maybe uh, a couple times an hour. And this is so that when the uh, grow bed is full of water, uh, the plants can suck up the water and the nutrients they need, and then when the grow bed is out of water, uh, the plant roots have access to oxygen, right? And this is important if you just uh, if you just um, if you didn't have the drain cycle, the plant roots wouldn't get oxygen, and so and then they would rot, and your plants would die, and that's not a very good aquaponics system. <laughs> right. So uh, the next question people usually ask me is, well, you just told me that in the deep water system, they're just sitting in water. How do they get their oxygen? And the answer is that you have an aerator, uh, which is an air pump attached to uh, to some sort of porous structure. You, know, you Usually you just buy these air stones, which are porous stones, uh, and the air pump pumps air through the stone, and that bubbles up uh, and provides your oxygen to the water, and then the plant roots can, they have oxygen in the water that's available to them because you're actively adding it. Uh, the third type, which I mentioned because um, it's, it is important to know all of your options, but I, I don't recommend it uh, unless you have experience with hydroponics. Um, and that third type is uh, NFT, uh, and this is where you have a very small film of water uh, going down uh, a pipe or a rain gutter or something of that nature, and the plant roots sit in that water so that uh, they're submerged, but there's such a, uh, the water is so thin, you know, we're talking a couple millimeters, um, that uh, the surface area provides enough uh, area for oxygen to diffuse into that water readily. Um, it's incredibly productive, uh, but the trouble is that to get such a, a slow level of water in your grow beds, uh, you have to use pinhole apertures, uh, you know, something very small for water, water to trickle out of your fish tank and into your grow bed through, and those are very, very easy to clog up, right? And if you don't go small enough to where they're so easy they might clog, then you have too much water and your plant roots don't have adequate oxygen and they rot and your plants die. Okay. <laughs> That's not what I want out of my thing. No. So, so I would, you know, I would recommend either the flood and drain or the deep water. Um, and it, and when you're deciding between those, um, it depends a lot on what you want to grow. Um, if you want to grow leafy greens, uh, plants that are generally shorter uh, and you're from the planting to the harvest, it's very quick. 
um, then uh, you're looking at a deep water system would be great. Um, the flood and drain systems really uh, come into their use when you're growing plants that um, that either grow taller or they are in the system longer. And uh, what that media does is it gives them uh, plenty of support for that root structure to grab onto. I mean, people grow banana trees in flood and drain systems, right? So there's plenty of support for the roots in those that in a deep water system, those roots are just suspended in the water. And so if you have something like a, you know, like a gigantic tomato plant, it can be grown in a deep water system, but it's going to do a lot better in the flood and drain system uh, because you're giving it the support the big plant needs. Okay. So um, as we try to balance all of this, how do we balance uh, a system that is uh, a highly productive vegetative system with actual with the animal care side of things? Like, how do I take care of these things? Because, like, if a lettuce gets a little wilty, there's time to fix it. But if a fish floats, it's dead. Yeah, there's no saving a dead fish. Um, you know, it's it's all about uh, when you're looking at aquaponics. It's all about compromise. Um, you know, you've got your plants, uh, they prefer a more acidic uh, environment, and your fish uh, prefer a more basic environment. Um, and for those who may not be familiar, uh, when I say acidic and basic, I'm talking about the, the pH scale. And this is kind of a, it's a quality that any, any water will have. You know, pure water has a neutral pH, um, water that has certain, uh, certain chemicals in it, uh, is acidic or basic, depending on the nature of those compounds. Um, and so, what we have to do with aquaponics is we have to uh, we have to maintain the pH right around the neutral 7.0 level. Um, that's that's your main uh, variable you're going to look at. Uh, the other uh, important variable to make sure that your fish are alive and your plants are doing well is your ammonia level. And uh, the pH and ammonia, and I'll talk later about uh, some other things, uh, these all can be measured uh, with kits you can buy at most, um, most pet stores that you know, sell fish. Uh, you have your pH, we keep around 7. Your ammonia levels, um, ammonia is, uh, is toxic to fish. It's a, a byproduct, you know, like we produce uh, you know, urea, as a byproduct of digestion, fish uh, produce ammonia. And this ammonia, it dissolves passively out of the fish's gills and into the water, right? That saves the fish a lot of energy, uh, but the trouble is it can dissolve the exact opposite way very easily too. So if the ammonia in the water builds up too much, all of a sudden the fish uh, is gaining ammonia instead of losing ammonia. And uh, eventually, you know, that's going to lead to a sick fish, uh, and it, it can d- die um, from the ammonia exposure, but it's also going to leave your fish more susceptible to disease. So you want to um, you know, maintain your ammonia level when you check it. It should be very close to zero. Um, the, uh, the first maybe month of your aquaponic system running, if you put a new system in, uh, or if you're starting up a seasonal system for the first time, you're going to see your ammonia rise. Uh, and then it's going to fall, um, but uh, that's as these as these bacteria that take the ammonia and convert it into less toxic forms. Uh, they grow and develop, 
and eventually you have enough of them uh, to where they're taking all of the ammonia the fish produce and very quickly uh, turning it into nitrite. So if your ammonia is high within the first month, but your fish are still eating, they still look okay, don't worry about it. If your ammonia is high um, after the first month or your fish, uh, they're not eating, maybe they're getting sick, uh, then you might want to look at doing a water exchange. And we don't like to do water exchanges in aquaponics because uh, that's taking nutrients away from our plants. Um, but, you know, again, sometimes you have to compromise. You want to keep your fish alive. And uh, these bacteria I talked about a minute ago, they take the ammonia, and the plants will, will absorb some of that ammonia uh, directly. So your plants will take some of that up out of the water by itself. Uh, but these bacteria, they'll take your ammonia, they'll turn it into nitrite, uh, which is a similar compound. It's less toxic to fish, but if when you test for nitrite, and again, that'll you'll be able to do that in the same kit you get from a pet store. Uh, if your nitrite levels are high, um, that can also be damaging to your fish, uh, cause them to eat a little less. Um, but that's, you know, that's less of a problem because if you're doing things right and these bacteria are alive, they're going to be able to take the ammonia from nitrite, you know, from ammonia to nitrite, and then from nitrite to nitrate. Uh, it's very similar names, very different compounds. Sure. Nitrate. Now, this is stuff that anybody that, that, that's kept fish in a tank in their house would be familiar with these concepts on, on a different level because they don't have plants or a lot of plants to deal with some of the excesses. But you mentioned a water exchange, so I kind of wanted to ask you about that. When I used to keep a tropical fish tank, I would do a 20% water change, I think once a month was one of the schedule that I was keeping, and it, it seemed to work. If you have to do a water change because of high levels in aquaponics, I imagine it's not 100%. It's a a portion, and like you said, you don't want to do that. Does that mean like you never want to do it and only do it for emergency purposes, or is there any routine uh, maintenance along those lines? Yes, yeah, so um, if you can, if your fish are eating, don't do a water exchange. That's kind of the rule of thumb. If you're, The first thing a fish will do if it's unhappy is it will stop eating. So if your fish are not eating and your ammonia is high, um, then I would think about doing a small water exchange. You know, like you said, for your your aquarium, you did about a 20% exchange. Uh, that's probably a pretty good number, you know, 10 to 30% uh, water exchange if your ammonia is high and your fish are not eating. Right? I can't stress that last point enough. If your ammonia is high and your fish seem happy, you know, don't do anything because, you know, the plants get all of their nutrition from the water. If we exchange the water, that's taking nutrition away from the plants. Um, and so, you know, if you do do a water exchange, you don't do very much, you know, 10 to 30 percent. Um, right, because, you know, as you said, you know, that's taking nutrients away from your plants. And they will, you know, the problem of high ammonia will correct itself over time uh, as the bacteria metabolize the ammonia, as the plants take up the ammonia. Because right? there, for the fish, ammonia is toxic, but for the plants, it's a nutrient. Mm. We're just trying to balance those two together. And all this balancing is where, you know, like, and, and don't think this wrong because Paul bitches about everything. But Paul Weed would say, I don't want to do aquaponics. It's too much trouble. It's too much of a pain in the ass. That's what I want to do. Aquaculture and everything takes care of itself. So, you know, with that kind of attitude that some people do have toward aquaponics, how much time does this really all take? Um, one, to get the system 
stabilized, and then once stabilized, how much constant work is there? Uh, you know, when you're when you're first starting your system up, uh, you're going to want to check your water quality, which is your pH and your ammonia. Uh, sometimes uh, you'll do the nitrite and the nitrate as well. For the first month or so when it's starting up, you'll want to do that, I'd say, at least uh, at least every other day. Um, but after that, uh, you know, if you're if it's just a small scale system, you know, in your backyard or your basement, uh, I would I would only do it once a week or so. You know, if you're doing this for production, you want to check your pH every day, um, ammonia once a week. That's the general rule of thumb, right? But if it's a backyard system, you know, where you're not relying on it for income, you know, you can uh, you can just check your pH and ammonia about once a week. And those tests they take, uh, well, maybe five minutes, you know. So five minutes a week plus feeding your fish and harvesting your plants, yeah, that's not too much time at all. No, not at all. I think that maybe there's a misconception because um, people looking on at this maybe don't realize how stable the systems become, especially larger systems, because so much effort goes into educating people. Well, here's all the things that can go wrong, and here's how you balance that system out. So what most of the time people seem to be looking at or reading or researching is either to the troubleshooting or the startup so they don't realize how stable the maintenance becomes, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I have a, I have a system in my backyard that, you know, it's a seasonal system. I only use it spring, summer and fall. Uh, but you know, it literally takes me, uh, you know, probably total of, of 30 minutes a week, you know, five minutes for the water test, 25 minutes to throw some fish food in and, cut down the plants when they're ready. Hmm. But, you know, while we're on the, the subject of water quality, uh, I would like to point out a lot of times when I'm looking at these how-to guides and it's often on forums, um, it's hard to tell if the people that have written them uh, actually have ever actually done aquaponics. Um, <laughs> because one of the things they like to leave out is the addition of um, of calcium uh, carbonate, agricultural limestone. And uh, your pH is going to drop slowly over time. Uh, the bacteria that convert ammonia to less toxic forms uh, drop the pH naturally, and that's good. That's a sign of a healthy system. Um, there are some experimental aquaculture systems that just let the pH drop. Uh, it bottoms out at a, a low level uh, for those chemists out there. Uh, usually around 5.6, 5 5.8. 5 um, oh. And thing, yeah, so that's uh, that's pretty dangerous for your fish. Um, there are some species that seem to tolerate it, uh, but I would say that this is an experimental technique. If you want to try it, go for it. Um, but realize you might kill everything you have. And I would recommend if you're looking for something that's uh, you know going to produce for you, anytime your pH gets uh, gets below 6.5, you add a bit of agricultural limestone. Okay. It's going to bring your pH back up. It's going to give uh, plenty of calcium to your plants, um, help your plant growth, and uh, keep your system a lot more stable. And the, you know these big production scale systems that are out there, um, you know they're adding a little bit of agricultural limestone every day. Um, they'll alternate between ag agricultural limestone and uh, potassium hydroxide. Um, because the fish food is lacking uh, as far as what your plants need, 
it doesn't have quite enough calcium, it doesn't have quite enough potassium, and it doesn't have quite enough iron. So if you're looking for maximum production, you're going to want to uh, add your agricultural limestone and potassium hydroxide uh, whenever your pH uh, gets below 6.5, and you're wanting, going to want to throw in something that's high in iron every now and then. Um, for the backyard uh, system, you know, it'll work fine just using the agricultural limestone whenever your pH gets low. Um, if you want to move up and, and, and experiment around with a technique, uh, I'll let you know that, you know, potassium hydroxide is what's used. Um, really, you could use anything, you know, any sort of potassium-based fertilizer, uh, you know, like your green sand that's a good potassium organic fertilizer. Uh, for iron, people use chelated iron, um, but really anything with iron in it, just uh, keep, an, keep an eye on what you're adding. Uh, try to check it out and make sure it's good for both the fish and the plants. Um, yeah, I mentioned green sand, and it's a good potassium fertilizer, um, but you have to be careful. Uh, sometimes green sand can impact pH uh, one way or the other, and kind of unexpectedly. So add a little bit, see what happens. I think there's a lot of times, that if nothing is catastrophically going wrong, moderation in the solution is probably a good idea, and see what happens first. Exactly. You've got to remember that, you know, this is a balancing act. It is a relatively new technique. Um, you know, there are, there are foolproof ways to do it. Um, and if that's what you want to do, uh, they're out there, you know, build a system, feed your fish, harvest your plants, uh, throw in your agricultural limestone every now and then. Um, and if you want to experiment around with it, you know, try any sort of crazy thing, you know, I would encourage that. You know, just realize it comes with some risks. Every, and like everything could die. I mean, <laughs> well, if you're using nine cent goldfish, I mean, you know, they're one step away from bait anyway. So, you know, I mean, I, that's what I'd say. If you're going to try anything radical, do it with something that's a, a low, uh, a low risk on the financial side of things, and and maybe try it the way that you know works right first, and maybe build an experimental system so that your main system you know is is dependable and. There might be some benefit in being able to look at two systems side by side anyway if you're being experimental. Exactly. You know, just like with the, the bees, um, I've heard some of your guests say, you know, get two or three colonies at a time so you know what, you know, what looks right. You know, aquaponics is, you know, if you want to just build one system, that's, you know, that's fine. Um, but if you want to experiment around, you know, it's just a, and it's also just a general principle of experimental design, you know. Uh, you have one system where you don't change anything, and you have one system where you change something. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of beekeepers that are advising new people always say get two hives. You know, so yeah. you, you don't know if one's doing good or bad if you don't have anything to look at in comparison to. <laughs> um, where where do you recommend people get their fish? And you know, is it worth trying to breed your own, or you're just better off resupplying each cycle? Because as you've said already, unless you're doing like a heavy, heavy commercial sized operation, the fish are like a a bonus. You're not growing that many fish. Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, I would. This is one of the reasons why uh, tilapia is good. Uh, as much as I I hate to admit it because, you know, my personal bias is for the, the channel catfish uh, just because it, it can tolerate the cold temperatures. But tilapia are very easy to get and very easy to breed in an aquarium. Um, so, you know, you can order some tilapia from uh, – there's there's tons of suppliers on the Internet. I'm not particularly attached to one or the other. Um, 
you know, you, you can uh, get your tilapia that way, uh, the first batch. Um, and then uh, there are lots of several protocols uh, available on the Internet uh, for breeding tilapia. Um, the lowdown is uh, that you basically you raise them up um, about a year of age. Um, you, you trick them into thinking it's spring by, by um, you first put them in a, a, dark, a dark aquarium, uh, and then you increase the light cycle to where it's uh, 12 light, 12 dark works, uh, you know, 18 light, 6 dark works too. Uh, pretty much anything over 12, 12 will work. Uh, and that'll trigger the females to start producing their eggs, and they'll breed. Uh, and several weeks later, you can scoop the fry out of the tank. Um, but, you know, for more de- details, uh, find a good source Um so if you're using tilapia, you know, just order a couple and then set up a tank or two uh, alongside to breed and give you a continual supply. Um, if you're doing any other sort of fish, um, I would suggest, uh, you know, I would be hesitant about ordering them over the Internet, um, you know, partially because it's hard to know what you're getting and it's hard to know how well they travel. Um, so find a good local supplier. Like you said, your local feed store had a fish guy come in once a year and have had some hybrid bluegill for sale. Wow. I think you'll find uh, similar arrangements. Um, you know, just get on the Internet, try to find this, a fish farm nearby. And, you know, they may not be crazy about selling to you uh, in, you know, a batch of 50 or 100 fish. Uh, but, you know, tell them you'll pay, I don't, you know, a little extra, a dollar a fish. Uh, and they will fall all over themselves to sell you fingerlings. You know, so it's um, at those prices, it can still be economical for the backyard aquaponics uh, producer. And uh, you've made a good friend and a fish farmer. And that's always a resource, an excellent resource to have uh, if you're going to start farming fish. You know? yeah, yeah, I'd completely agree with that. Um what is your recommendation for, for a basic setup? Like, do you, would you recommend that somebody buy a pre-built setup? They do a build-your-own? Are there any, you know, there are scam artists on the Internet. You know, you feed your village for a dollar crap. I mean, are there any reputable information resources that you would personally recommend or products you would personally recommend? Um, there aren't really any, uh, you know, turnkey products that I would recommend. Um Unfortunately, they just they tend to be way too expensive for what you get. Um, you know, so if you're if you're buying a kind of a system in a box, uh, you're probably unfortunately getting ripped off. Um, if you just want something small, proven to work, and you know, you say you don't you don't really care about spending a little extra money, um, then there are uh, you know I've seen examples of good ones. Um, you know. Just, uh, I would really encourage you to try to look up how to build it yourself. Um, for for the person who uh, who doesn't isn't worried about aesthetics, uh, you know, it's IBC containers are incredibly popular uh, because they're cheap and they work, and you can get food grade containers. Um, I think they're pretty ugly, um, but if I uh, if I had a little shed to put one in, you know, absolutely I would. It's the most economical uh, fish tank you can buy. Um, so you have, uh, for your fish, fish tank, you would have an IBC container. And then a lot of people like to cut the tops off of an IBC container and use that as the grow bed. Um, so you've got this deep container for the fish and a shallow container for the grow bed. 
Um, you can also uh, make your own grow, bed, grow beds out of any sort of pond liner. Um, you know, give it a structure, put the pond liner in, uh, make a grow bed that way. Or if you have a source of IBC containers, the same source probably also sells recycled 55-gallon barrels. Um, those, if you cut them in half long ways, they make pretty good grow beds too. Um, but uh, you know, if you are worried about aesthetics, uh, what I would say is to uh, find some, you know, some reasonable-looking plywood, uh, make a tank out of that, and line it with a pond liner. Um, you can do that pretty cheaply, uh, and then you have something that you know you can stain the wood whatever color you like. Uh, you can put some veneer over it if you want it to look a little nicer, um, and then you can make your grow bed either the same way. Uh, kind of a wooden structure lined with a pond liner, um, or uh, you know what's also popular is to use a large diameter PVC pipe. Um, and you just drill holes in the top to set your plants in. Um, then you don't have to worry about a floating raft on top. Um, if you're using a deep water system, and if you're using a flood and drain system, you know, you've already got the plant the places to put your plants in. Okay. Um, that's just awesome. I, I think that the the real big thing here is that people need to just take a shot at it. That it it seems like there's so many different ways to do this that it, it's it's one of those worlds where analysis paralysis can definitely become uh, the the biggest impediment to success. That there's like oh, I want to do this or I want to do that, and there's so many different ways these things can be done. That if you just give it a shot, you're, you might be more likely to, to have some success. Now, you mentioned IBCs, and I'd like to ask you a little bit about how you might set that up for deep water, because that's what Murray does with his flood and drain systems. But all the ones I saw in his videos were flood and drain. How might you set up uh, an IBC based system for deep water? Yeah, so, um, so for your listeners who are uh, familiar with um, Murray's uh, system, for a deep water system, you could do uh, you could do pretty much the same thing, uh, but cut the top a little lower, so you've got a little bit of extra space to play with. Um, then just you know you've got your fish tank with the bulk of the IBC container. You've got the top of the IBC container as the grow bed, um, and you ju- uh, just put a you know the uh, the most popular material to use as a floating raft is. Uh, of the expanded foam uh, insulation boards. Uh, so buy a board, cut it to size, uh, drill holes in it to fit your plants in, uh, and just set that on top of the uh, of the top of the IBC container once it's full of water. Uh, another option would be uh, to just leave the IBC container intact. Um, you might want to, you know, there's a hole in the top in all of these IBC containers. You might want to cut a little larger of a hole just to make. Uh, access for yourself a little easier, um, and then uh, get a bulkhead fitting uh, or anything of that nature, uh, stick it into the fish tank, uh, put a pipe through, and pipe to a a separate media bed, well, not a media bed, but a grow bed, um, which could either be, uh, like we talked about earlier, kind of a wooden construction with a a pond liner uh, to make it waterproof, uh, or, you know, a 55-gallon barrel sawed in half works well. Um, you know, kind of the trick is to, you know, I'm sure you can buy specially uh, made um, containers for from the hydroponics industry, um, but, you know, you're going to pay a premium for that. 
And if, if that's okay with you, then you know, I'm sure it's a lot easier to work with. Um, but uh, there's kind of a lot of ingenuity and tricks and uh, finding uh, other materials that'll that'll work as well. And, and it's all very uh, very variable depending depending on where you're based. You know what's located around you. You know uh, where I am, I can get a 55 gallon barrel for you know 10 bucks. Uh, used, food safe, cleaned, sawed in half, uh, makes a perfect container. Uh, most places, uh, you know, you can go down to your local uh, home improvement store, uh, buy some wood pretty cheaply and buy pond liner pretty cheaply and make a, make a container that way. Um, but, you know, again, you, know, you talked about analysis paralysis where there's so many ways to do it and, and that's absolutely true. So don't, you know, let the, the amount of opportunities scare you away from it. Uh, but maybe once you're a little comfortable with it and you want to build another system, you know, try something else to make a grow bed out of, you know, there's, there's sure. plenty of options out there. Very cool, man. Well, are, one final question for you then. Are there any websites or forums that you would recommend as good resources? Because I think there is a tremendous value in internet community and people sharing information. Um, and you know, we have a great forum on our site, but it probably has a very limited amount on aquaponics. Yeah, um, you know, it's it's sad to say, but there uh, there isn't one in particular I would recommend. Um, I would I would recommend looking at them, reading them, uh, you know, maybe uh, asking a couple questions on there, and uh, and try to gauge for yourself, you know, what's the level of these people responding? You know, do, is what they're saying does it make sense with with everything else I've read uh, so far from reputable sources? Um, you know, kind of trying to, uh, the, the unfortunate thing is there isn't a good centralized source. Uh, so you have to, uh, you have to just evaluate each one individually. Okay, man. Well, I appreciate that honest response to that. And, uh, I appreciate you being on the air with us today. I mean, it, it does sound like you have some level of, uh, professional experience with this stuff, but you're not here to, uh, promote a business or anything. So you, you were clearly here on the air today just to help people get an overview, uh, of this method of growing. I know there's been a lot of questions on it and, uh, I'm sure you wouldn't mind kind of showing up in the, uh, the comment section of the episode to answer additional questions. Yeah. And, um, you know, it might be, uh, it might be easier. I'm, uh, I've been, Posting a little bit on this podcast forum, um, you know, if that's a better venue for people, um, you know, I'll be monitoring. I think you've got an aquaculture uh, critters and uh, some and livestock uh, section of the forum. Sure. So uh, I'll be uh, I'll be you know monitoring that as well, and uh, that way we can have some expanded conversations. And and I'd also like to add, you know, if you're if you're interested in uh, aquaponics, you know, I'd be happy to answer your questions. But if you're also interested in and just aquaculture, you know, just growing fish or shrimp, then uh, I'd love to, to try to help you out on that as well. Very cool, man. Well, I appreciate you being with us on the air today, and uh, and thanks for joining us. Wow, thank you for having me. It's been a great experience. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spearco today along with Tom Smith, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do it.
Yeah.